Well, take your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter 3. Today marks the halfway point in our series through Philippians. I don't know if that means you're worn out or excited, but we're halfway through. We find our way into chapter 3, and uh, it starts rather abruptly. I don't know if you noticed that when Morgan read. Um, He starts with this exhortation to rejoice in the Lord, and then he goes right into verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's rather abrupt sounding, right? Be joyful, watch out. It's like, well, Paul, which, which emotion do you want from me this morning as we jump into chapter 3? How do these verses fit together? What is he trying to teach us, and how is this relevant for our Christian faith in a modern-day America? Well, I hope that uh, you're a little bit curious, and uh, I want you to understand, friends, that this is a very, very important passage, and we're going to be looking at it in two weeks. I know we had verses 1 through 11 read aloud for us, but we're not going to go all the way through verse 11 this morning. We're going to stop after the first part of verse 8. Very, very important passage for us. And I want to warn you that this passage is going to challenge us deeply, particularly if you've been a Christian for a long time. Now, not only, if you're not a Christian, this passage, I think, will challenge some of your notions about what you might think Christianity is. If you're not a Christian, you might have some ideas of just religion and, you know, arrogant, hypocritical people that are shouting fire and brimstone and don't live this way and live that way. And so it'll challenge some of your notions, but it will also, I think, challenge some of the notions that we might have accumulated having been Christians for quite a while. And uh, friends, um, by the way, um, growing in the Lord is something good. It's painful, it's challenging, but it's good. And uh, it's always worth it. Always worth it to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And there is no other group of Christians that I would rather grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus with than you. Friends, we are a spiritual family. And what we get to do together week after week, Sunday after Sunday, is we get to look into God's Word and grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So, just a little perspective how amazing is that? That is amazing. And so, Christians, church family, I want to encourage us to really. Uh, Let's put our heads and our hearts before the Lord into this text and see what he would have for us this morning. Let's jump in. Paul's command for his spiritual family of brothers and sisters in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord is tied back to the nine other times that Paul has used the word joy or rejoice in this letter so far. And it's tied back to the other times that he anchors a command for them with the words, in the Lord. So he tells them to be confident in the Lord in chapter 114. Or in chapter 2, verse 19, to hope in the Lord. Or in chapter 2, verse 24, he is trusting in the Lord for some of his travel plans for his ministry partners. Or 229, he tells Christians to receive Epaphroditus back after he's finished his mission in the Lord. And I haven't pulled that out as we've gone through this yet, but those words in the Lord are significant. It anchors the command in the source of the command. So confidence is not found in some sort of self-arrived, you know, self-esteem objective. It is in the Lord, or his trust, or his travel plans, or as you get to this, this text, rejoice. The source of the joy that he is commanding for his readers to have is found, it is sourced in the Lord. And by the way, this reminds us that Jesus is the fountainhead for the entirety of the Christian life, the entirety of it. Sometimes as Christians, we forget that. But Jesus said it like this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
The rivers of living water is, is Christ who comes into us and fuels us and sustains us and provides for us everything we need for the Christian life, including our joy. Confidence, hope, trust, joy. What do you need this morning? In the Lord is where you will find it. So how can Christians then rejoice in the Lord, especially when things aren't going well in life? Paul writes this in prison. In verse 2, he's worried. I mean, he's giving them commands, right? I mean, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Which, by the way, it's it's not going to trouble him to repeat himself, okay? In verse 1, and then he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So how is it then that Christians can find joy in the Lord? Is Paul just kind of pumping out false, fake, squishy religious sentiment? Hoping to kind of, you know, schmooze them into some sort of Christian, you know, experience. No, it's not. It's real and amazing. And the rest of the passage shows how Jesus is the source, the everlasting waters of our joy. Christians rejoice in the Lord because there is no greater source of joy than the Lord. Now, I'm going to prove that to you from the way that Paul continues to write. Now, some of you might have just rolled your eyes at that. Um, I could imagine some teenagers rolling their eyes at something like that, right? Jesus is the source of joy, really. Okay, well, Jesus hasn't sent me a text recently. All right, I'm not watching his TikToks. Um, right? I mean, Jesus and religion for a lot of people feels like the, the, um, the threat of joy. Don't do this. Don't do this. Stop doing that. Stop. <gasps> you did what? And it's like Christianity or Jesus sometimes can kind of be like perceived as the joy sponge. And yet Paul has the audacity in prison to say rejoice in the Lord. This really collides with our modern day sensibilities. Adults, right? You may think of it that way. I, I thought about teenagers, right? I mean, what, they, they want friends, right? Like Jesus is the source of joy. Man, my, a boyfriend would be a source of joy, maybe. A, a girlfriend, maybe. Jesus, maybe a full bank account or, or some cool travel plans or, or some relationship, maybe that would be a joy, but Jesus, ah. Well, hang in there and listen closely because in the beginning in verse 2, Paul gives these harsh warnings, right? Dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, and yikes. What's he talking about? And then verse 3, he talks about, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I mean, really, this is one of those passages you read in your Bible reading and you're like, okay, rejoice, watch out, circumcision, okay, Paul, whatever. What is he talking about? It's a little bit of a whiplash. Well, those who he refers to as mutilators of the flesh was in, is a reference to the dogs and the evildoers is a reference to those who demanded that everyone observe the ceremonial rite of the Old Covenant, which was circumcision, given to ancient Israel, as a requirement to have a relationship with God. They require that you had to do that. And Paul equates these very religious, you know, these people consider themselves extraordinarily religious because they require this religious expression in order to know God, he is calling them mutilators of the flesh, which is something that the law forbid in Leviticus 21 of those that were, the, the law forbid following the pagan practices of mutilating the flesh of the pagan religious, uh, pagan religions. And Paul is saying, no, they think they're religious. They're actually the ones that are guilty of doing the very thing the law forbids, this kind of pagan ritualistic mutilation. Why is he so harsh? Because those who demanded this religious ceremonial observance from the Old Covenant were doing so as an expression of 
confidence in the flesh. That's what they were doing. They thought that they were the people of God. We have followed this Old Testament covenant, and you're not one of the people of God unless you do this. And so what Paul says is, for we are the circumcision, or you could insert the word, the true people of God. We are the true covenant people of God. And then he defines who the true covenant people of God are. Do you see this list in verse 3? God's people here, number one, worship by the Spirit of God. Number two, God's people glory in Christ Jesus. And number three, God's people put no confidence in the flesh. So do you call yourself a Christian? Okay, now if you run to, yes, because I go to church and I was raised, and I mean, my earliest memories are sitting on the front porch with grandma and sweet tea and singing Amazing Grace and, and you just start filling in the blank of what you've done and it's absent of something like this. Do you worship God and the Spirit of God? Do you glory in Christ Jesus? And you have put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the distinguishing hallmarks of who the true people of God are. So, this list, people of God worshiping by the Spirit of God, which is just a reminder, friends, that the only way anyone has access to God is through God. God made the way to God. The way, I mean, we were able to worship God this morning, not because of something we've done or we happen to all be in the same place or we sang the right song the right way or we said the right thing. We worship God through the means in the ministry of God's Spirit, which abides in his people and makes it possible for us to know him. He, Jesus explained this to Nicodemus by saying, you've got to be born again by the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus is like, well, then, I, mean, I guess I'm a lost cause because how am I supposed to do that? That was Jesus' point. You can't. You need God's miraculous, sovereign, decisive intervention of his grace. That's what you need. God's people glory in Christ Jesus. The term glory here is used often by Paul throughout the New Testament. I think there's like some 35 times where Paul talks about glory or exalting. This guy was always exalting. We all exalt in something. Some of us exalt in ourselves. Some of us exalt in accomplishments. Some of us exalt in some sort of you know, political figure or sports figure or fill in the blank. But Paul states that a distinguishing mark of a true Christian is that they exalt in Jesus. So he's going to juxtapose that now in verse 4, which leads us to the third mark of exalting in oneself. Which, right, he, they put no confidence in the flesh. And this is where he unpacks the rest then of this text. And this ties back to his warnings against those who demanded observance of the old covenant sign of circumcision as a requirement in order to earn one or, or, or possess standing and right standing before God. Now, I know this is kind of brainy and logical. Paul was a really brainy dude, okay? He was a Pharisee. He was trained. He knew multiple languages, okay? And he's walking through this very logically, and he's, he's stating things that a really smart guy in his age with the Greco-Roman, like, sophist society, would have been, they would have chuckled at and laughed at. What well, sounds foolish, Put no confidence in the flesh. The Greeks, the Romans, were the people that did that. I mean, they were the Stoics. They were the ones that had the writings and, and, the, and, the, uh, and the debaters and the, the people that would have logic, right? And he is saying, don't put any confidence in the flesh. So, 
Circumcision was this old physical, the old covenant sign, but it pointed to a new covenant spiritual reality. You can find verses like that in Romans chapter 2, where he says, 2.29, circumcision is a matter of the heart. Heart. Okay? That's what the Old Testament sign was pointing towards, something, this new covenant reality that was inaugurated with Jesus. So then, here lies the friction, the rub, the issue that we all face. We all naturally want to contribute to achieving right standing before God. We all naturally want to contribute to our salvation. That is our natural human condition. All of us in this room have that inclination. Whether you're not a Christian, you're trying to save yourself. Whether you are a Christian, you're still going to have this propensity, this inclination, this natural bent to want to save yourself. We all naturally want to do something to contribute to our salvation. In other words, we want to be in control of our salvation. And Paul delves further then into this issue of putting no confidence in the flesh through verses 4 through 6, which in summary is this. If anyone could claim to have a reason to have confidence in who they are or what they've done before God, it was the Apostle Paul. Right Now, I know the list that he gives here really doesn't resonate with us, But hang on, the list that he gives here is organized into two categories. The first category relates to what he received from his parents, his birthright, his pedigree. I don't know if you can use the word pedigree with people. I looked it up in a dictionary and it seemed like all the definitions were animals. But you get the point, right? This is what his birthright was. The second category is everything he's done. And in all regards, real quickly, his parents gave him a spectacular, pristine, blemish-free birthright fulfilled all the requirements. They gave him this lineage that went back to the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the two tribes that was loyal to King David, the the Davidic covenant, the predecessor of King Jesus. There was a loyalty. There would have been a nationalistic pride from that. What tribe are you from? You know, I'm from Benjamin. Ooh, okay. And then he goes on, and he wasn't just a a spiritual religious trust fund kid. Thanks, Mom and Dad. He was a go-getter. I mean, look at what he did. He was a card-carrying member of the Pharisees. His obedience to the Old Testament law met the ruthless and high standards set by that zealous religious order. And by the end of verse 6, he says, listen, I was blameless. I mean, and and he was making that statement, and there would be those that would be alive at that moment, that other Pharisees that would have said, yeah, I hate Paul, because now he's one of these weirdo Christians. Yeah, he's blameless. I mean, the guy is just infuriating. I mean, he had this credit to himself. He was unmatched in his religious zeal, which, by the way, religious zeal and fervor alone is not the hallmark of true spirituality. Okay? It's not. So what is this all about? What is Paul doing here? Paul is giving a resume. He's giving a resume. Now, this is where all this is going to get practical. Okay? So, listen up. What is a resume? Well, it's a list of accomplishments. It's a list of your merits. It's a list of what you've done. It's a list, an annotated description of self-exaltation. Some of you are feeling bad about your resume now, right? (laughs) It's a list of all the great things about you, right? Why do you do a resume? You give a resume to get in somewhere, okay? You, You want to get into a job, so you list about all the great things about you, and you hope to get in to this job that you're not in yet. You're out. Or maybe you want to get into college, you list a resume of your accomplishments in school, your extracurricular things, to hopes that you'll go from being out to being in. 
or maybe a scholarship. You, you, you're out, you don't have the money, you've got to prove to them why you're worthy and you should get the scholarship. And so you give a resume, you fill out these forms, you do all that to get in. We get the idea, right? Well, as I was studying this week, I came across some comments, some pastoral comments that dated back to the 90s. Found these insights so helpful. I've heard them through the years. And so if this is helpful to you, um, I, I think this will be helpful to you. In regards to how Paul is writing a resume here, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. And you're like, okay, well, I'm not trying to get a job, or I'm not trying to get into college or get a scholarship, so Sean, so what? But friends, all of us live with resumes in our life all the time. We do. So think about this. Think about your relationships. You function in relationships with a resume. I'm not here to make us feel guilty. I'm just here just to assess. You are, and and by the way, this isn't all bad, right? You want your teenagers, you want your kids to kind of have, you know, you should be looking at their resume before you just say, yeah, I'll be your friend. You, right, you want to be friends with somebody? Teenagers, get this? You want to fit in? So a particular group, you're worried about how do I look? How do I act? What do I say? What is that? It's a resume. How do I behave? Maybe you want to get married, Right? I mean, resume land, right? I mean, we get this, right? I mean, online profiles, what is that? It's a resume. Um, When you date someone, you do it with a resume for yourself, right? You're assessing your own resume. How do I look? How do I, how do I, okay, I know I'm being, I haven't dated in a long time. Um, Praise God. Uh, You're wondering about personality. You're wondering about her career, his career. You're wondering if if she's successful. Is he successful? I almost got myself in trouble there. What is their sense of humor like? Do they chew loudly? Do they snore? Okay, what does she look like? Am I sexually attracted to them? Are they to me? What is that? That's all a resume. We can keep going, right? We've made it all out there, but let's turn the spotlight in here. We function with a resume internally for ourselves. We all have a resume for ourselves, a list of what you like about yourself, what you don't like about yourself, what makes you feel good about yourself, what doesn't make you feel good about yourself. What is that? A self-resume, a set of standards by which you judge yourself. And I promise you, you have a personal resume. And to the degree you meet those standards or to the degree you fail those standards is to the degree that you accept yourself, you let yourself in, or you don't. And you hate yourself. If you do good, you feel good about yourself. If you do bad, according to your resume, your your list, then all of that's measured against, what, a personal resume. So how does Christianity speak into this resume kind of life? And how might the truths of Christianity set us free from this kind of bondage? Well, we've already looked at Paul's jaw-dropping resume, right? In verses 4 through 6. But now in verse 7, he talks about finding something much, much better. So much better and greater that what he previously was exulting in, he now considers a loss. Look at verse 7. It all pivots right here. But whatever gain I had, he thought it was gain. He was marching around Greco-Roman world, imprisoning Christians, marching them to their death sentences, standing with the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. He stood over their material possessions and was an eyewitness to the death of a Christian man who was faithful for the gospel. 
He thought it was gain. Whatever I thought I had gain, I had. Now, what has happened? I counted as loss. How? What has changed his mind? How is there such a dramatic pivot for the sake of Christ? And he uses legal terms here of profit and loss. What he used to think made his resume great, he now considers a liability. And you, you, know, you know what a liability is, right? Some of you are like, yeah, don't remind me. Goodness, right? Still trying to pay that off. He now considered what he thought was, a, was something that was valuable. Now is actually a liability, a loss. How is it possible? Look at verse 8. Indeed, he's going to press this further. He's going to just keep swinging this truth into our heads, into our hearts. I count, I consider, another legal term, another specific abacus kind of, kind, of, kind of term, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord is connected to for the sake of Christ. If you wonder in verse 7, what do you mean for the sake of Christ? It's this, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word surpassing there is this idea of hyper or mega I mean, he's adding these superlatives into his language to overwhelm his readers. He's not being melodramatic. He is exaggerating, but he's not really. He's using the terms that he has to pour over these people, his readers, something so much greater than what he thought was great. Jesus. Knowing Jesus. There it is. There it is. How can we be set free from the slavery of resume kind of living? Before God, with ourselves, with others, only, here the answer is, only by embracing, by treasuring, by finding supreme value and rock-solid belonging and identity in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, here's the challenge. We sing stuff like that. We hear it read. We'll nod yes. We'll write it in our notes. And then we'll live our week as if Jesus doesn't matter. As there's no worth there. Our hearts grow cold and callous. But Paul exchanged his own resume for something that far surpassed what he had. He lived in the resume of knowing Jesus. You see the words there in verse 8? My Lord. This was not some distant, abstract, religious idea. This is personal. Remember Paul's story? If you're a Christian, you've read through Acts. You know this. If you don't know the Bible, I'll, I'll tell you here, but... In Acts, I mean, Paul is on marching to, to do more destructive work against Christ's church. And Jesus interrupts that visit. I mean, he's on this road and Jesus appears and absolutely shatters Paul's ideas and revolutionizes Paul's life through this vision, through this encounter. So when Paul would say, Jesus, my Lord, he, was not, he wasn't just using you know, a little Barney language here. This is true. He had suffered for Jesus. He turned his life upside down. So why does any of this matter? Well, here's where we're, <clears throat> we need to dig in and we'll try to wrap this up. A lot of people think that Christianity is basically saying, stop being irreligious. Come to church. Stop being prayerless. Start praying. Stop breaking the Ten Commandments. Start obeying the Ten Commandments. A lot of people think that's what Christianity is. You may think that's what Christianity is. Many people think that Christianity simply means you go from being irreligious 
to being religious. You stop doing irreligious things and you start doing religious things. The Christian message, they think, is just stop, start, be religious, and you'll be okay. That is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. Now, some of you are like thinking, so I don't have to be religious. I can be religious. I don't have to obey God. I can disobey. Pause. Hang on. Whether you live a religious or irreligious life, both are efforts to fulfill the same need. Remember we talked about how we all have this natural desire to save ourselves? The religious person says, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to be better than other people. I'm going to be very religious. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve the church. I've been good. I've said no to a lot. I've said yes to all these other things. I do good things other people don't. The religious person says, now God will come through and save me. Now God will give me and, and get what I want and bless me. The religious person lives life like this in an effort to control God, to get from God the desired outcome. Salvation according to their terms. But this is just a strategy to be in control of your life, a religious strategy. It's what Paul was doing. It's his list. It's his resume. He was doing all of this, thinking this is what gave him standing before God, confidence in the flesh. You see that? He was very religious, and he says, by the way, if you think I'm speaking, I'm going overboard, I'm not. He's actually going to call it, I think it says rubbish in our text, but it's really kind. The translators were, it is the word for feces. And next week, we'll unpack that. Aren't you going to come back? But test yourself. When you do good things, do you feel good? Do you you feel good in the sense that God now owes you good in return? That's religion. That's not Christianity. Do you get angry because your life isn't going the way you want it to go and you're frustrated because, after all, you've been religious and God is not coming through? That is religion, not Christianity. Do you think God owes you if you attain a certain resume kind of life? not Christianity. It's religion. Now, the irreligious person seeks to control their life through just different means. Through self-directed irreligious behavior, a religion of their own making, right? An irreligious person will say, well, nobody can prove that there's a God. I don't think that there's a God. Who knows if the Bible's true at all? We can't know for sure, so I'm going to live my own life according to my own way. And in the end, it'll just work out. Who do you think you are to tell me how to live? Who does God think he is to say, I can't do this or I can do this? Irreligious. I'm in control. I'm going to give myself the life that I want. You're exerting control of your life through self-directed religion. That's what you are. So in summary, the irreligious seeks to be in control of their life through self-directed behavior. The religious person seeks to control their life through earning or meriting confidence in the flesh, a particular response from God towards them. And Paul describes something that is not one or the other, something that is far surpassing them both. It's not irreligion, and it is not religion. It is the gospel. It is Jesus. It is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christianity isn't the path of religion. You could fill in Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, on and on you go. What is that? It's resume life. 
Confidence in the flesh. Christianity is unique amongst them all. And then it says, no, no, no. Throw out your resume. If it's irreligious, throw it out. If it's religious, throw it out. And you're thinking, well, then now what do I have? And God says, I'm going to give you Jesus' resume. I'm going to let you know him. Then that changes a life. You see, a person doesn't become a Christian by simply repenting of irreligious behavior. A true Christian is someone who has repented of all their efforts at self-salvation. And that includes bad irreligion and it includes their so-called good self-righteous efforts to get in with God. I mean, Jesus used the example of you've got this Pharisee and this wicked publican, this, this like outcast in society, and the Pharisee says, God, thank you for all the things I've done, for my tithes, for my offerings, for all of my actions. What is that? Religion. And this other guy says, God, have mercy. I'm a sinner. No resume. And Jesus says, that man who had no resume walked away justified. So, it is possible to have Jesus to be a model or even an example you try to follow. But if you do, what you do is motivated by an effort of self-salvation to get yourself to God through your religious actions, so you don't really, that means you don't really have a Savior because you are putting confidence in the flesh, not Jesus. You haven't yet experienced the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Trying to save yourself is what Paul calls confidence in the flesh. And so what Paul does here is he points us to the resume of Christ. And we're going to glance ahead a little bit into this. And this is where we'll wrap up. This is what's going to be unpacked next week. I hope your heart is hungry to know even more of this. But again, what we need is the surpassing resume, the mega better resume of Jesus and his righteousness. And do you realize then why Jesus could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. How? He frees you from your resume life. He frees you from confidence in the flesh. Stop running on this treadmill of self-righteous works, of trying to work off guilt and shame. I mean, the song we sang before the sermon, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me, Take that text home. Play that this week and let that warm your heart. He's taken our guilt. He's taken our shame. But has he in your life? Or are you just a very religious person striving to measure up, striving to meet this demand, striving to work off your shame and guilt, coming to church to kind of be washed a little bit from that, but going home and then running on this religious treadmill all week long, coming in exhausted with your failures and doing it all over. Friends, this is why Jesus could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke, my yoke is easy because he's the one who did it. He was the one in Gethsemane. He was the one on the cross. He took the punishment for sin. He is the one who rose up from the grave and gives it all to you. So this is why Paul could say, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is not religion. That is Jesus. It's all Jesus. We don't add a line to that resume. Not a single entry. Nothing. Nothing. And this, friends, radically changes then everything about us. Uh, I mean, we're out of time, but you start pulling the thread of, of this reality 
it radically changes how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because, I mean, really, if, if you consider, if you are looking at other Christians in the sense of, and I'm better than they are, that's religion. That is not Christianity. And Jesus Christ needs to slay that dragon. It delivers us from that sense of superiority. Like, man, I did pretty good this week. I read my Bible. I didn't, like, cuss out my kids. You know, I, I was, you know, I didn't kick the dog. Man, this church should be glad that I'm here this morning. That is not Christianity. That is religion. Repent. You have missed the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Or the other side is if you walk in, you're like, man, I am such a loser. I hate myself. I can't even look these Christians in the eyes. These Christians are a threat to me. You want me to show up at home group? Are you kidding? If they knew what I was like, what I did, how I behaved, if they knew what happened on Tuesday at 11 a.m., they would kick me out of their house. If that's your response, that's not gospel. That is irreligious. That is religious in kind of a flip upside down way. Jesus saves us from it all. If, if, your, if your world is, is just wonderful because you've accomplished and you're successful and things are going well for you and people are affirming you, that's religion. And if somebody criticizes you and your world burns down around you, that's not, that, that's not Christianity. Christians are so stable in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. As we grow in the Lord, I know as we grow in the Lord, right? So when somebody criticizes you, you can look them in the eye and say, yeah, man, actually, what you said is true and it's a lot worse. But I know Jesus. And so do you. Or when we're filled with the sense of success and look what I've done, to go, man, why has God been so merciful and kind and gracious to bless? I mean, you're just, right? I mean, why? He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. It's all the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So friends, what we have here is, this is why Paul could say in chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. It's an endless fountain, source of joy. Endless. Security, comfort, rest. Relief from shame and guilt. Rock-solid stability in a world that's changing and scary. On and on it goes. So friends, there's nothing more relevant. So then, what does this mean? Well, friends, I want to... If you're, if you're not a Christian, I hope this has been helpful to clarify some of the many mis- misunderstandings of what Christianity really is. And I hope that there's a hunger in your heart to know more of that. And we would love to share more of the rest and the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so we'd encourage you to talk to whoever brought you. And if you've been attending a long time and these kind of truths are like rocking your understanding and world about who you are and how you know God and Christianity, please don't, don't walk out with just haunted by those thoughts. We, would, we want to encourage you to keep leaning more and more into knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And Christian family, I want to encourage us this way. Would we let the resume of Jesus be what fuels our serving together and our greeting of one another and our relating to each other and our, our forgiving of one another and our loving one another and our serving one another? not out of a self-resume, but out of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Can you imagine more and more as more and more of us and friends, my heart has been, has been renovated by these truths too. 
Can you imagine the church family that God could shape over time as these truths grab us and change us and make our thinking different? How the relationships and our service and our joy. How, how then what Jesus said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples. We want to be a light shining on a hill in a pagan world. Like, where does that light come from? By this all people will know that you're my disciples. You have love for one another. Where does that come from? The resume of Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So, this week, would you pray for this church family, for yourself, that we would be a people that remember and live and enjoy and learn more and more the relevant, practical relevance of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus.